Hey, welcome back to another Dispatch from Holly McKay. This time we are going to go to different places of the world with Holly and different times in history. How are you doing, Holly? Good, thank you. Oh, very good. We're going to start with a a place that uh, many people listening are familiar with from your work, Afghanistan. But in particular, we're going to talk about an Afghan-Canadian activist uh, uh, by the name of Nadima that you wrote a story about. Tell us a little bit about her and what makes her so special. Yeah, so Nadima became a, a good friend of mine um, while I was living in Afghanistan last year. And, um, you know, she really saw was one of the few women that didn't want to leave, even though she, um, you know, she was born in Host in Afghanistan, but spent much of her life sort of in Dubai and then later in Canada. So even though she is Canadian, she was, uh, really one of the, I guess, few women, Afghan women in particular that didn't want to leave when the Taliban came in last August. And she really saw it as this sort of unique opportunity, um, you know, for women to, you know, to sort of, um, I guess make inroads and, and, and change Afghanistan away from, um, the previous government, which I've talked a lot about in terms of corruption and things. So Nadima really kind of embraced it as a, as a positive thing, um, which is, you know, quite striking compared to the narrative of it being an extremely hostile place for women. Um, so she really seemed to have a good relationship. I went to host with her. She had a very good relationship with the mayor of Host and, you know, other Taliban members who seem to really respect her. She uh, sort of is a comedian and, and has a following on social media. Um, but, yeah, and then sort of after I'd left and in, in several weeks into to this year, she um, she was running an NGO and, and working with different Westerners, just sort of providing um, aid to, especially to women in rural areas. And and the next thing I'd heard was that she had, um, the Taliban had sort of stormed her office one afternoon and that she had been, uh, detained. And I read sort of several articles. I think her brother in Canada had sort of spoken out and was looking for help and nobody had really heard from her or, or quite sure, you know, her health or her condition or anything that was happening. So, um, yeah, it was certainly unnerving. And, um, then, you know, several weeks in and 21 days, I believe it was, um, I got a message from her that she had that she had been released, and um, I thought it was really pivotal to just talk to her about her experience. Oh yeah, uh, definitely. Um, so, what was the conjecture from her as to why you know because running a successful NGO was not something that was frowned upon because the, the Taliban wanted those kinds of things. What caused the shift when you talk to her? So it, it's not clear and it's not even clear to Nadima and she's very um, positive about the whole thing and she's really put the experience behind her, so to speak, and she's determined to stay in Afghanistan. She's still living there. She's running the NGO. Um, you know, she really said that she wasn't, you know, she wasn't kept in jail per se. She was kept, um, you know, in a sort of house um, that she couldn't leave, but she said, you know, the Taliban often bring her food and um you know she's a vegetarian so you know she talked she kept telling them she doesn't eat meat which they thought was baffling um so you know she insisted on them bringing her certain foods that she wanted and and she said she fasted a lot and really kind of used the opportunity to pray and to to remain and she's a very calm person so to remain very calm and and kind of really see the silver lining in the whole experience of having downtime so to speak but 
she was never charged with anything. And it really, even when she was released, um, you know, the Taliban kept saying they were investigating, but it, it's not clear exactly what happened. And I think that is really the trademark of, of the Taliban, unfortunately, is that they will often arrest people and detain people for significant periods of time without any formal charges or without access to lawyers or those sorts of, um, you know, their, their version of the rule of law is very different. Um, but Nadima sort of in her conversation, um, and I go through it a little bit in the story is that she really seems to think that, um, somehow she was framed. Um, so again, be, um, a jealous person going to the Taliban and saying, um, that she is doing something egregious or running some sort of, um, illicit prostitution ring or whatever it may be. Um, we don't really know, but we're just sort of conjecturing at this point, but, um, yeah, that sort of seems to be the consensus is that somebody told the Taliban she was doing something she wasn't, um, and they had to sort of arrest her and, and investigate while that was happening and, also arrested her Western colleague Ian um, as well, but he's also you know safe and back to work. And um, so it, you know it is a fortunate story. But having said that, I, I still do have uh, several friends of mine that have been detained by the Taliban since early December, and there really isn't any news and or progress in in their release. So that is um, something I think about sort of every day, and uh, I just I just hope that a resolution can be found. Oh, there you go. Well. Um... Uh, well, hopefully, uh, the reason they released her is they investigated the allegations, found them false and let them go. I, I, the last piece of this thing in terms of some of the things that she advocates for, uh, particularly for women is, um, uh, advocating for people to put free online courses on the internet so that yeah, girls so can I learn. Can- yeah, so Nadima is a, is a very positive person and, um, she sort of, you know, at the time we were t- speaking, you know, the Taliban again had really disappointed girls by not allowing them to return to school. And this has obviously been the case with public schools in Afghanistan since they took power in August is that, um, you know, after secondary education, you know, girls are still sitting at home. It's really, it's a devastating situation. Um, but her solution when I sort of talked to her about this um, was really that, that you know, as COVID proved, as other things have proven, is not that we need to be in a physical place. Um, she suggested it would be safer uh, for, for girls and women to um, to be able to go to school from home. You know, she sort of said that if people in the world really cared about women's education, they would be putting these sort of free courses online um, and then coming in sort of to enable and obviously – the internet is, is, in my view, when I was there, I had strong internet, but the electricity um, is a different situation. And that is in a city, the rural areas, it's certainly a little bit more difficult. But again, you know, her solution to it is if NGOs, instead of, you know, protesting in the streets or sort of running around online saying um, that, you know, upset about the girls not being able to go to school, her solution really is is being able to to set up internet, set up computers, set up tablets, whatever that may be, um, and uh, and really have the girls uh, not dependent on government systems and um, and be able to get their education from from wherever. And it's it's certainly a lovely thought. In practicality, it, it may be challenging, but it's certainly not impossible. You know, one thing the U.S. did really do in Afghanistan was put a lot of money into into trying to to get the internet. Um, you know very strong and, and in as many parts of the country as possible. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the kind of thinking that um, can bring countries forward, and Afghanistan certainly could use that. So good. more power to her. Okay. Well, I mean, what an interesting story. Next, we're going to shift to the other side of the world. And uh, you went to Mexico, and while you were there, you interviewed a Mexican hitman. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I was there doing some other stories, which will come out soon, but um, I sort of had this opportunity um, while I was, you know, out in the mountains um, to interview, um, we call him Ram, it's not his real name, but, you know, um, he is, yeah, he's a sort of a, he's an American, he's actually not Mexican, um, I think, you know, comes from Middle Eastern and Dominican descent, and he, he um, you know, was very happy to sort of talk to me about what it's like to kind of for many, many years be basically paid to, um, you know, take someone out or just to scare them or beat them up. But um, he was a very interesting person and uh, certainly a world that um, I think gets romanticized a lot in, in TV. And it's certainly a terrifying world for many people, but um, I guess it's that mobster mentality where it very much exists. And um, I just wanted to understand how this kind of game works because again you read about it you see it in the movies um but to sort of have the opportunity to ask somebody you know what the toll of that to um to really make a career out of this it's it's uh it's something that does boggle the mind yeah it does yeah well uh, i mean i i definitely recommend it uh the people that are hearing this interview check out the the text of what's there and then click on to read more because it, it, it is a very interesting story in terms of exploring the the uh the mindset of uh, an individual that you ran into over there very cool yeah and you know really interesting was um you know he sort of and again this this is an individual who never never took any sort of drugs or anything like that um you know in his life and you know doing some work and ended up taking a spoonful of this plant medicine called Obergine and and he sort of said that that was a very defined moment for him because it really brought him back to past experiences and it was the first thing that enabled him to really feel um, feel for his subjects and to um uh, just feel a sense of remorse that he had himself from so yeah it was certainly um, a wise-ranging and interesting interview yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I, I was, uh, it, it's definitely you, you, you see the, the guy talking about his career and then, you know, the, the, this turn later in life of suddenly feeling everything that he's done. And, um, it's, um, quite poetic actually when you think about it. And it's a, it's a kind of, it's the kind of thing that movies are made out of. Yeah. Anyway, um, let's see. Let's move on to the third thing, which is takes us back in time. In, uh, you interviewed, um, some ladies who are now fairly old about the 1980s in El Salvador. Tell us a little about, about that. Yeah. So really, you know, when I started to research and read about El Salvador, um, and it, it really, I knew very little about the civil war that started there in, 
in March of 1980. And, and as I started to read and understand it, and as I was sort of trying to understand the ramifications of MS-13, which is obviously the big gang there, I started to understand why so many people from Central America were fleeing to the U.S. border. Um, really, this, this 1980s war in El Salvador kept coming up. And, and as I started to probe, it really was one of the most brutal sort of conflicts and that the U.S. not only being in our neighborhood, but um, just, you know, it was supported by the administration as in the government was supported against uh, these rebel groups um, that was under the Reagan administration. And and as I sort of started to look at the abuse and that was sort of committed against, um, you know, not just fighters, but just civilians and, and sort of to look at the U.S. hand in that was, um, it was really jarring to be honest with you. And, and I went to El Salvador to, to go especially to, uh, Mazote, an area that was brutally massacred, um, to talk to some of the survivors there. And honestly, it was just, it was just, you know, really left me with nightmares. Some of the stories, um, of these women and, you know, these are incredibly wrong women now, but, you know, having these fighters that would come and, and take their children away to fight. And, you know, one of the ladies, she was pregnant and she, in the middle of this kind of crazy bombing as she's trying to flee her home, um, she's going into labor by herself, you know, and I just, it's the sort of thing that I, it's hard to wrap the head around. And, and I think we have to look at history um, and look at the present day tensions. And, and there is links between that because ever since that, that war and, you know, priests were massacred, um, you know, by these government forces. Anyone who tried to sort of speak out against this, uh, dictatorial sort of brutal government at the time that was the U.S. was supporting, um, they also were, you know, subject to just absolute torture. And, um, you know, you're looking at entire villages that were really just burned alive, um, and really a lack of justice. And, and every now and and then there'll be a trial that comes up or or something that that happens that a survivor may you know be able to to seek some form of recognition or justice for what happened to them but um really you know it was one of those things that was was very much sort of covered over once it had happened and this is long before there was social media and things and i just think it's a it's a really crucial part of American history to, to sort of understand, um, that particular war. And then I guess the, the gangs that really grew out of that, uh, chaotic aftermath. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I remember that, uh, from the, from the 1980s. El Salvador was a, uh, it was, uh, a, a, an ugly episode. It, um, I think the closest, uh, thing to it in terms of, uh, you know, previous, uh, uh, problems in the Americas would be back going back into maybe the sixties with, uh, the, uh, you know, similar types of, uh, brutal things that were done by people like Che Guevara and stuff like that. But mm. yeah, I mean, you know, uh, re- recovering or, or remembering that, you know, these, cause these people are old now and, uh, and, and documenting, um, the feelings that they had and, and the, and the troubles that they went through before they're gone, I think is uh, an important thing to do. And, you know, so good for you. I mean, that's. Yeah. Um, and I, I really think, you know, I'm in Iraq right now and looking at um, sort of some of the conflicts and, and militias and things that have arisen out of, you know, not only the U S war here, but then obviously with ISIS, which kind of grew out of the end of that war um, as well. So you, 
I think when we, we see a war, we see this all the time when a war is over, we think, okay, well, the war is over, but it's actually really not over because you have this very chaotic situation often, um, you know, after many years of intense conflict, and then you have so many different groups and parties that still grow out of that. Um, and that is really sort of the gateway to the next war. And so we, we need to look at history as to, you know, what can be done to kind of, um, you know, once these wars are over, what sort of, uh, reconciliation processes are in place? What, um, rebuilding processes in place? What psychological processes are in place? And I think that's been neglected in a lot of places for far too long. And, and so many places, um, right now really, really feel that burn. Yeah. Well, I mean, um, you're right. And the, uh, consequence of not paying attention to that is you're basically just setting up the next conflict that, that will arise from the hard feelings that were left over from the last one. And we see that over and over again in different parts of the world. And, um, I don't know. Maybe we'll learn. Maybe we won't, but, uh, it's certainly good to have coverage of it, uh, which you have done here. So, you know, thanks for that, Holly. And, uh, we'll talk to you on the next one. Thank you. All right.